Disconnection and disassociation disorders are pretty prevalent all around the world. In today's episode, we're talking with Austin Weber about his journey with disassociation, talking about the trauma that led to his disassociation and how he found his way back to reassociate with his body and associate with humanity. Uh, I think this is something that a lot of us have uh, an issue with, a lot of us experience. And just like our previous conversations, the more we talk about this stuff, the more we feel like we can find the help and we're not ostracized thinking that we're the only one going through this. We touch on a lot of different ways that we can feel disassociated from society and from ourselves, from our lack of understanding our intuition to things like cancel culture and how we maybe not feel like we can fully express ourselves because of what people might think and how people might react. And towards the end, we find ways to reconnect. We find ways to, t- to come back to ourselves, to come back to society, to come back to humanity. I'm really thankful for Austin and his vulnerability with this conversation. Hope you get something out of it. We'll see you on the other side. But first, a message from our sponsor. Anamkara is a gorgeous meditation and healing center offering daily in-person and virtual services to help bring you back to the center of who you truly are. They serve through a collective of practitioners, healers, and teachers offering daily meditation classes, one-on-one healing sessions, workshops, personal ceremonies, and private events, plus corporate and team training, all with mindfulness at the core. The center itself is located in the heart of downtown Spokane. Every part of it was built, designed, and curated for you to drop into your calm place. They have a large community space for daily meditation classes and workshops, as well as two one-on-one healing rooms, a community kitchen to gather for tea, plus a well-stocked apothecary for you to gather all of your self-care and ritual needs. Hannah Talbot, the owner and founder of Anamkara, dreamed of opening this space for years. It is her ultimate manifestation, and she cannot wait to share it with those in the Spokane community, but also through the virtual ethers, wherever you may be. Pop in for a class today. You can follow them on Instagram to book and stay up to date. Check out the website, the full schedule, meet the practitioners, and view all the offerings. Visit them at anamkarahealing.center. Anamkara, may you be nourished and ignited. Our healing journey can be difficult and might feel lonely at times. That's why I love sound baths. When we can get together in a community, we intrinsically support and feel supported by others. And that combined energy can help us go deeper into our own healing journeys. And all you have to do is just lay there for one hour and listen to beautiful healing sounds. I'm a sound healing practitioner, and I hold sound baths on a regular basis in the greater Seattle area. You can find my next sound baths on my website at adamrealhealing.com. That's Adam, A-D-A-M, real, R-I-E-H-L, healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G, dot com. AdamRealHealing.com. Your healing is worth your time. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Austin Weber. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, Today, I'm sitting across from a good friend of mine named Austin Weber. Um, Austin actually approached me, and I love when this happens. I love when people approach me and say, hey, man, I I I want you to approach this subject and then I'm like, well, why don't you come in and talk with me about it, right? And uh, the the subject that that Austin brought to me is one of those that, you know, as soon as you hear it, you're like, of course, I need to talk about that. Like, we need to talk about that. One of my goals in this this uh, podcast is to uh, normalize tough conversations, awkward conversations, you know, things about, you know, our sexuality, things about like menstruation, things about abortion, you know, all these things that are hush hush and we shouldn't talk. Let's fucking talk about it because we need to talk about this so we can heal this shit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so thank you for bringing that up to me, you know, and um, I'm going to turn this over to you in just a second. But 
with disconnection. So like this just lands deeply with me. Um, yeah. I disconnected from myself for a long time, from my family, uh, disconnection slash disassociation, right? Um, and a lot of times we don't even realize we're doing it because it's like a trauma response. We feel like we're, we're protecting ourselves. And, uh, and so you know, when I started looking at like some of the ways, um, this, this, you know, psychiatric website, I found the top three ways we can uh, disconnect from self or, or feel disconnected. And these are like trouble signs, symptoms to look for within ourselves, uh, feeling disconnected from yourself or the world, which I mean, that's pretty standard for a lot of us, especially coming out of COVID. Point. Right? <laughs> uh, forgetting certain time periods, events, or personal info. So just basically like chunking out times of life. Like, I don't remember that shit. And then feeling, uh, feeling uncertain about who you are. You just explained my Monday. Right. That is every Monday for me. I wake up and I ask those questions. <laughs> yeah, here we go again. <laughs> so Austin, thanks for being here, brother. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I, I love our conversations. Um, we've we've uh, met at your workplace and now we yoga together, become friends outside of that. Um, I'm very sad that you're going to be moving to Spokane, but I'm also excited for Spokane to receive such an amazing human being. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, to continue that, that beautiful, uh, you know, uh, continuation of what Spokane can offer. Um, but you know, in this last, let's say six months where we've gotten to know each other, maybe a little bit better. Yep. Um, you started coming to yoga more. Yeah. And I love it. And, but there was a catalyst. Absolutely. And I don't know if that's the reason why this, this subject matter kind of came up is your kind of journey through this dark night of the soul, if you will. I would say it absolutely did. Okay. Um, because it was a reflectionary period where I didn't have a lot of people in my life anymore. Mm. And so I really was able to sit with myself. I was able to ask myself these questions of why I do the things that I do, who I wanted to be. Um, and I had realized that these habits and these patterns had started all the way from my childhood. Mm. Yeah. So it, I had spent so many years thinking that I was healed. <laughs> I had spent so many years. And what it really was is that I was in this state of complacency and stagnation where I felt safest. Mm, yeah. And as things started to approach, I realized we went back into my old patterns of disconnecting and dissociating and seeing what that brought about in my life was very painful. Mm. And so I realized that I needed to do a lot more work specifically with digging back into my childhood and yeah, kind of retelling my story to myself in a sense. Yeah. And that's, I think that's really important to do because we get caught in our version of a story and, and a lot of times we're the victim in that, in that version of the story. Yeah, and, absolutely. And not to say that we shouldn't understand, uh, where we were maybe wronged, but the utter victim. Like I can look back at my life and feel very victimized, but uh -huh. also look back and be like, I was the asshole in a lot of those situations. And then I, I hid in my victimization of like, how dare you? Yeah. How dare you talk to me like that after I've just berated you? you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's so easy to do because the entirety of our existence and our worlds comes from an egocentrical perception. We, we can't help it. Our, everything we take in is from the focal point of us. Mm. And so it becomes so easy to feel victimized when we are the hero of our own story in so many senses. And so a lot of my healing has been accepting that, recognizing that, and trying to change the narrative when 
I start to see outside of myself in various circumstances. Right. You know, it's funny you mentioned the hero in our own story. There's a, a lot of work I've been doing recently with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and the, the seven, 17 stages of the hero's journey. And, uh, and I just had a gentleman on my show, um, it'll come out in a couple of weeks, but we talk about, you know, a little bit about the hero's journey. And he mentioned something that was really interesting to me. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm pinning this with this gentleman and going back and we're going to have another conversation about it. But we get so caught up in our own version of the hero's journey. Let's take, let's take Lord of the Rings, for example, right? Let's take, okay. you know, the, the, the story of Lord of the Rings. I would say 90% of us see us our, ourselves as Frodo, right? In our own, in our own story, right? We're the one that's, that's, that's in, in charge of the ring. We have this responsibility of life to do. We've got, we've got a task, right? And that can be true because you're the one living that life. Just like you said, like yeah. I'm the one living that life, but I'm also Sam, in somebody else's hero's journey. I am Gollum in somebody else's hero's journey. I'm fucking Sauron in somebody else's hero's journey, right? So we don't yeah. understand like the roles that we play outside of our own internal hero's journey and how we show up in other people's journeys until we're very conscious and aware of that aspect. And then how can I be Sam? How can I be the most supportive human being in the life that you live to make sure you feel safe and you accomplish your task? Then keep Gollum away. And I love that you brought up Lord of the Rings because as I was talking about that that focal point of ourselves, Frodo began to change as he felt more and more that he was the only one that could do this journey. The amount of times that Sam offered to help and tried to support and he was met with snappy comments and aggression and all of these things because Frodo wasn't ready to accept that help. He wasn't ready to accept the love and support that he had sitting right next to him because he was just so focused on him and him alone. Yes. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's, that is our journey, right? We got to start to look outside of us. I think it's uh, psychiatric, psychiatric wise. If you look at the human body, I think, uh, I think it's around the age of nine is when we can start to understand that there's a, there's an aspect of life outside of our own consciousness. Like we don't realize that we have consciousness still, like most of us don't, but like as a child, I don't know that my mom is thinking something different than me until about the age of like seven to nine. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, there's this long period of time where we feel like everybody's thinking the same way we are and everybody's on the same page. That's why whenever mom doesn't let you have that toy in target, you throw a fit because it's like in your head, you were already playing with that shit at home because mom is the best. <laughs> mom bought me a fucking toy. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to have that, that, that moment where we realize like, shit, the world is bigger than me. You know, the world is bigger than my own consciousness. I think novels helps us understand that as we get older. You know, the more we start to read, especially novels, the more we put ourselves into positions we don't understand. And I love what George R. R. Martin said, talking about how the person that reads has lived a hundred lives. And I realized in my journey of disconnection, the reason that I fell into novels, and I mean, like I would destroy 600, 800, 1200 novels in days or a week. Um, and all of it I'm realizing was I was just trying to find something outside of myself, something that I didn't know about. I was trying to discover parts of me that I wanted to put out into the world. Right. And that's what all this disconnection was it in every facet, whether it was video games, movies, reading, I was really just trying to put myself in different situations and then find something that landed with me Mm. that I could use. Yeah. 
Well, I think you, I mean, we've, we have so many ways to disassociate and disconnect now, you know, mm-hmm. but also seemingly stay connected. Now, I think that's one of the traps we fall into is yeah. that, you know, we have things like social media and Zoom and all this fun stuff to where I can talk to somebody in Pakistan. I can talk to somebody in China, yep. right? I can talk to anybody in the world. I can talk to a fucking NASA uh, <laughs> astronaut in space if I wanted to. That's bonkers, yep. right? And, and that, that is a sense of connection. But in what I've, what I learned about myself about COVID, and I've shared this on the show before, is that I, so I've always considered myself an introvert. I'm very introverted, um, and I, I relate that a lot to the jobs that I've had. I've had to be extroverted. I've, I've worked in restaurants. I had to be the guy putting on the show, the party. I was bartending, all this stuff, right? Yeah. So when I got home, it's like I, I just need to recharge. I need my my time. And I leaned into that for a number of years until COVID happened, and I realized how much I thrived and I needed that extrovertedness. And when all that was gone away and all I could do was hang out with Monica and my dog and my kids, which are beautiful people, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't filling my cup. I felt empty until I would have a conversation with Camo or I'd have a conversation with you or I'd have a conversation with Tang. And then I'm like, oh my God, that's right. I'm a, I'm a social human being. We're social beings. We need to be part of something. We need to be part of a collective, have a goal, have something we're working towards. Yeah, absolutely. Know? And we just needed that. I needed that shakeup in my life to understand that again. And I, I remember, you know, I, as I've been growing up, I've been trying not to identify myself so much with these titles and so much with these conceptualizations of what even an extrovert and introvert are. Right. Because for so long, I thought an introvert was a shy person, somebody that wasn't outgoing and, you know, all of these things. And I realized that the introvert was really just, I felt replenished when I was with me. Mm. And that's what I needed to prioritize when I was feeling out of energy. But exactly what you said. I I leaned into that introversion and I stayed in the back of the kitchen. I stayed in stocking and prep and all of these things. And it wasn't until I started working on a sales floor that I realized how extroverted I could be. And then once COVID happened and once that was taken away how much I had missed that, Mm. how much I had missed being seen. Yes, I needed my time to recoup and bring that 100% of me out into the world again, but I still needed it. That connection is always there. And I would think regardless of where you fall on that spectrum of introvert and extrovert, what we can all agree is that connection to people is so fundamental to us as humans. We're, We're so communal. Yeah. Can you look back in your, in, in, so in, in the, the life that you've led up to now, the, you know, what we can remember, because mm-hmm. there's so much, do you, do you see yourself moving through these disassociation patterns through, through that younger part of your life until the point to where you're now realizing what those patterns are? I would say I was fully dissociated from age six hmm. up until just the last six months. Okay. Was there and, like a trauma trigger point of some like coming to trigger? Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit of a, a timeline of me. Um, so I would say that I was a very, very sickly child. Okay. And I experienced a head trauma when I was just around six, could have been five. I don't necessarily remember. But I had whiplash for two weeks and I didn't tell anybody about it. Oh, I had fallen off the playground. I landed on my neck and head. And I remember after that physical pain that my migraines started happening. Mm. And with my migraines, I was getting taken in and out of school. I didn't understand what was wrong. 
my mom had suffered with migraines, so she kind of gave me the rap on it, what I needed to do. But as a kid, you don't really listen. Right, right. <laughs> and through all of that pain, I, I also developed um, autoimmune diseases and all of these other things, mood issues, and I was just living in a life full of pain. Yeah. And so I started to dissociate in ways of when I'm in pain, I'm going to watch a movie in something quiet. I'm going to shut myself away and sleep because I can't even bear the presence of being right now. I just need the next day to roll over. When I was 13, my doctors got me on all sorts of medications. And that's when the next phase of dissociation started happening. I started taking uh, Oxycontin and um, Vicodin because mm. that was just what they were giving me. Yeah, and it's if, a hell of a combination. It's a hell of a combination. And if you look through the timeline, that's right when the opioid epidemic yeah. was happening. Yeah. So it's like, where on the scale of pain are you? And I'm like, this one. They're like, all right, opiates it is. Yep. And that very quickly started filling a hole that I was feeling in my life because right. for the first time I'm not in pain for the first time I'm just flooded with this sense of warmth and security and happiness and I wanted to keep that feeling yeah and very quickly developed a dependency mm-hmm. and then from that as you know with opioid dependencies you start feeling these rapid swings you keep seeking you keep wondering why you can't keep the thing that you want so bad And that cycle just continued through my entire life where I was just, I would cling on to the things that worked in the moment Mm -hmm. and I would ride them into the dust until they didn't. And then I'd get frustrated and try to find something else. And so it became a very cyclical pattern of that. And, um, you know, even video games was a huge thing because it was something that while I was in an immense amount of pain, I could pick up a controller and smack trees for a few hours, build a cabin, you know, in this game. And I did something, I achieved something. I talked to somebody, I worked with somebody. And so it was a great way for me to start living out my life without actually. And I look at a lot of my friends and just generally the people I've played with uh, through games. It's what so many of us are doing where we don't necessarily know how we're fitting into this outside world. And so we sink into this game where we can safely experiment, we can safely build these skills and work on these things that we're, we're trying to cultivate out in the world, but we just can't find a way to yet. Yeah, that's a, that's a really beautiful statement. You know, uh, I, I, um, so in, my, in the last official restaurant job I had, it was the first time I worked with kids under the age of 18. And uh, I should say young adults under the age of 18. And so I had these, these young adults, 16, 17 year, old, year olds, and, uh, you know, initially, you know, I, I was the boss, right? And yeah. people are always afraid of the boss, you know, especially a new boss come in. This place has been around for years and years and years. The team has been there for a number of years and you get a new guy in there, right? So you understand like there's some trepidation. There's some like, hey, who's this fucking guy? And, but eventually we, we make friends and it's like, hey, I'm just a human just like you, right? We're all mm-hmm. good. You know, and the, the awkwardness goes away and I can see the joyfulness in these, these young adults. But, so... They were all generally hosts, bussers, you know, just support staff. <clears throat> and uh, and so let's say I'm standing at the host stand, and there's me and three or four different hosts, all different genders standing around. 
and we're having a great time telling jokes, all this shit. And then as soon as a guest walks through the door, it's like somebody turned a light on and these were just little roaches. They all scattered. Yeah. Frayed as hell. And I'm like, where the fuck did y'all just go? I'm doing your, I'm not, I'm the highest paid goddamn host in the world right now. No, get back over here. Have a human conversation. <laughs> and I would see these kids be like, hi, welcome to the restaurant. And, you know, very, very like timid and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay. So let's have that interaction. Let's talk after this. Okay, so y'all play video games. Yes, you do. Because it's a generation that plays RPGs mm-hmm. and all that shit, right? Pretend that's just an avatar that just walked in, right? You can say whatever you want to the, in, in a jovial way to this person, yeah. just like you, just like that word bubble would pop up in your head, you know. And it's it, but it's it's putting things in context of where people are at now, you know. There's so many times I hear people in my generation. I'm 42 years old, talking shit about millennials, talking shit about Gen Zs, talking shit about all this stuff, you know. But it's like. How many people, the baby boomers are still talking shit about us, right? Yeah. But we just understand that like we've, we, okay, as a parent, my goal is to give my kids what I didn't have, what, you know, to set them up. And a lot of parents you talk to, they, they have that same mentality. We Mm -hmm. want to give our kids what they didn't have. But when they get that ease of life, then we shun them and say like, you're not doing it right. You're, you're fucking, you know, you're, you're bubble wrapped. You didn't have the, the same trials and tribulations we had, but we set that up on purpose. I heard a great thing where it was like the greatest disservice that you can give to your kids is treating them any different from what the world would treat them as. It's beautiful. And it was because exactly that. Here they are used to being catered to. Here they are used to being, yeah, just really, really being con- uh, like they have a lot of consideration for you. Mm-hmm. And you go out into the world, nobody gives a fuck. Right. You, you got to come in with your own contribution, your own sureness of yourself, like all of these things. And that doesn't fit how mom and dad treat me. I don't necessarily understand why. Right. And it, it made so much sense. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a really good point about how these kids just scattered as soon as like a real person came in. And yeah. I can give you a little bit of insight, at least how I felt when yeah, I please. had done all these games. When I was in a game, I was always the leader. I was always the person to bring people in to help people. Um, I was a deep diver on information. I love sharing that with people. Mm-hmm. But when I would go out into the world, I had a hard time talking with people because the realm of my experience and the realm of my identity and what I felt good about was in that video game. Right. How I didn't know how to apply it at the time. How do I bring that? out into the world and not have people look at me going like, well, where'd you learn that? Well, I actually learned it from this game where I was building and fighting dinosaurs. And, you know, they look at you like you're fucking crazy. (laughs) But at the same time, I hit this point where I realized that these were real skills that I was learning. I was learning how to work within a team. I was learning how to be considered. I was learning how to be political. I was learning how to do this and that. And it was just about how do I channel that into this thing actively into the world? There you go. When, yeah, when people can finally make that connection, I feel like they they start breaking out of that shell. They stop with the anxiety because they just know how to present themselves. They start realizing who they are. Right. And that goes to the, everything has a purpose, right? Everything, every step that you take in life, whether you realize it or not, has a purpose to set you up for that next step. And it could be a, it could be a perceived misstep, right? Yeah. But everything has a purpose. And so, to, to what you're speaking to, to, to put it into my, my realm. So like, and I'm 42, right? 
video games were like RPGs were just getting into a point of where, you know, like it was like James Bond when I was younger, right? Yeah. So we weren't really interactive, but you know, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, but so, it, but I wasn't in a place where our family could afford video games. So we didn't do video game shit, but my context for that as everything has a purpose is, and you don't really see this much these days. I used to sell drugs right? mm-hmm. when I was, uh, when I was out of high school, but before I moved up here to Washington. So for about three or four years and, um, and I, th- I look back at that time in my life and I'm like, how the fuck could I have done that? You know, I was such an idiot, you know, M- mainly sold weed. I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't violent. Didn't carry guns. Didn't have all that shit. Right. But you know, I was selling drugs, you know? And, but the thing that I look at is I had this team of kids that would work with me and that would go out and like, you know, sell shit and do whatever, whatever. Right. And I treated them like family because they more or less were, they were the family that I grew up with. They yeah. were the, my neighbors. They were all these kids that were like, you know, the, the, the misfit kids that didn't have shit. And they, you were building were, something with right, them. Right. You know, exactly. Might've been a drug empire, but it was something. We were building, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, they had a job. They, they, they worked for me, but okay. But you know, all that context aside, Again, I look back and I'm like, fuck, man, I, I was a shitty, a shitty kid. But if I look at that now with just take all the emotion away from it, take all the, 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 the perceived bad shit away from it and just look at the experience that I had, it taught me so much about how to treat people with love and respect. Because if I didn't, they would dime me out. They'd either steal from me or they'd turn me in, right? Yep. And so I had to treat these people like they were my family, which again, they were. And I loved them and I fed them and I clothed them and I paid them all the things that they needed to do. And that taught me so much now about like at a young age about how to manage people. And that's what I did for 20 years was manage people. Yep. I parlayed this drug dealing gig that I had into understanding that if I take care of people, people take care of me. Yep. Oh, go fucking figure, right? And why do we seek those things out? Why do we feel such validation and passion in those little weird things that come into our life? It's because we know subconsciously it's building something. It's mm. working towards something that we want for ourselves. Yes. The the most invested I ever got into a video game and it was fucking disgusting. Uh, I was just starting college. I tanked my grades because I was playing this game like 12 hours a day. It was horrendous. It was a, it was a totally new life, but I say this and I don't regret any of it because what it was, was a, a persistent world. It was on this Island, hundred people existed on this place and you could bring in friends, you could make friends, but all of us are fighting for the finite resources that are on this Island. Mm -hmm predominantly territory and space. And as groups came together and got bigger and bigger and more personality started coming into the play, the political nature, this was a Lord of the Flies situation in a video game. So now you have kids that are bringing in their own emotional baggage. Mm -hmm. You have kids that want to build something and you get all of these conflicts that start happening. And that was when I realized that this was a social experiment. I was building a community. I was giving roles. I was finding niches. I was figuring out how to work 
within these various tribes, wars would break out and the feeling of a friend that I had just a month ago, I'm now killing his babies that he was raising that took weeks. Wow. Uh, baby dinosaurs, I should say. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you, you basically could tame these dinosaurs and have them work as farm animals. Each had various purposes, okay. but you get really invested into these things because they are your, your livelihood and how you perpetuate your power. And so, yeah, it's like you could do some vile shit in this game. You could destroy their house, uh, take all their stuff. You could enslave their um, their other team members. You could put them in cages and just kill their time because they can't play anymore. Now they're in a cage. Uh. And so it was like that was the first time where I got this experience of like there are no rules. We are creating our own rules. Yeah. And... I took that out into the world. In fact, I even pitched it in a few interviews right. and landed some jobs just through that. It's like, okay, this kid knows exactly what he learned from this experience and what he wants to bring with him. That's fucking dope. Man. <laughs> so I, video games have their place. They do, most of But at the same time, when I was deep into this game, I was the most oppressed I ever was because I felt this rise of potential, this rise of knowledge, and yet I was not using it in the mm. real world. 12 hours a day, I was sinking into this game. Right. Anytime I would talk to people, re-meet with my family, like I just felt such a disconnection mm. because I didn't know how they would perceive that experience that I was doing. Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned something earlier that I want to come back to is uh, the, the injury that you had, right? Yeah. And so when we have, and I, I work with clients all the time that have that injuries and that, you know, some kind of body, something happened to the body. And then we stop trusting the body. Yeah. And we blame the body. You know, like I have a friend that I'm working with that has Lyme disease, you know, and by no means did this person do anything on purpose to contract Lyme disease, bit by a random tick, right? Yep. And now the body doesn't resonate with the mind anymore. And so he's demonized his body. And when you demonize your body, if you, I mean, it's, it hears it, it feels it, right? And it, if it feels that disconnection, then it's never going to like re relate to you the way it needs to. And so that disconnection with our body is so, so strong. And then we create those stories around it. And what I'm getting towards is the la the, the disconnection of intuition. Yes. Right? Because when we yes. stop listening to our body, not even just stop, but we demonize the body that we're in, then we, we, we lose so much information that comes in from your gut biome, from your heart sensors, from your just touch sensories, yep. like all this shit, because we don't trust it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I'd say that the biggest step towards my reconnection of self was through yoga. Mm, okay. Because it was me deciding that I wanted to figure out a better way to use my body. It is the single source connecting us to this physical reality. Right. Otherwise, we're just a brain floating in a tank. <laughs> uh, all of our perceptions, all of the data points that we're trying to acquire so our brain can use it and capitalize it, that's our body. And when we don't respect that, that vessel or you know that means of transportation, yeah, it changes the message yeah. in a sense because anything that comes through you while you're in intense amount of pain, whatever message or positivity or love that came with that message, it is now contorted and it is now twisted into the lens of pain that you are feeling internally. Yeah. 
And I remember always feeling alone, never feeling like I could truly connect with somebody, even though they were telling me how much they loved me and how much they cared about me. I couldn't believe it because of what my internal system was changing that message to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that brings up a really good point. You know, we could have, we could have, let's take our senses. We could have like the perfect senses, like touch everything. I can see perfect here, taste, all that shit. But if it's coming through a muddled consciousness, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. I can be sitting, like I'm sitting across from you right now, having a beautiful conversation. But if my consciousness was in a state of shock or a state of like fight or flight, then I'm just like looking at you like, please let this be over because I'm scared of you, Austin. Yep. You know, and it's like, where, where the fuck is that happening, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think there's, there's so much already uh, a disconnect with the desire or, of an understanding of intuition. Um, we, we don't really talk about it. We don't lean into it. We have to learn about it on our own. You know, the only thing I really hear about intuition on a regular basis is trust your gut. Yeah. And so much of that, like people throw up in the, the woo-woo category exactly, yeah. because we are such a fact analytical driven society. Show me the proof, show me the numbers, all of this shit. And it's like, okay, we can try that. But even that, even, you know, it's like, I'm a data science major. Mm -hmm. Data does not mean squat. Yeah. If you don't first figure out a story and a narrative that you want to use that for, and what is that? That's your intuition. Yeah. What do I feel that this data can be used for? What patterns do I see? Otherwise, it just, it holds no, it doesn't hold anything. It's yeah. just data. That's what our brains are so cool is because we're able to take this data, figure, wrap it in a conception and an idea, and then act upon it negatively or positively hmm. there there is no i should say inherently good or evil in the world it's neutral it, right. it is what it is and then we are the agents in which we act on that right yeah it's the perception mm -hmm. you know and there's uh you know i can't remember the gentleman i was listening to not the other not too long ago but talking about light and dark you know and our perceptions of light and dark and good and bad you know back in caveman days you know light was good like we could see shit. We could see the saber tooth tiger over there. What going yep. over there? There's a saber tooth tiger over there. It's warm, right? We can mm -hmm. feel the heat, you know, all that good stuff. Crops grew, all this shit was great. Darkness happened. Darkness is cold. Darkness is shadowy. Darkness is people, things can hide, you know, all this shit happens in darkness. So, so that's evil, right? Yep. But to darkness, a spider, that's where the spider thrives. Spider like eats all the things in the darkness. That's when it gets out there. Does it's all, all the on the lens and the context that you do. And exactly. like, you know, you can take that same concept even to another person, throw them in the desert. Now it's the exact opposite. <laughs> the daylight's going to cook you. Yeah. And in the dark, we can now function. All of the, the wildlife is going to be out. I can get food. I can move. I can do this. And mm -hmm. so it really is dependent on where you are right. and what you want to use it for. Right. And balance, right? Yeah. My, so my fiance Monica spent a number of years up in Alaska, and twenty three hours of sunlight will drive somebody bonkers after a while, right? Yeah. And so all and same with the nighttime. They go through those spells of nighttime where it's twenty three hours of darkness. That's fucking crazy, right? So we need that balance, you know. I, you know, I'll, I'll use meditation and alcoholism for me, right? Yeah. I was an alcoholic for a long time. Drank, 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 yep. and then finally stopped that. Meditated, 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 right? <laughs> I switched one addiction for the other. I was still non-present with my family. I was still, but I felt like I was doing something for me. Yeah. But it wasn't until like I pried myself off my fucking meditation cushion, had a conversation with Monica, had a conversation with my kids that I realized like, oh, it's a balance. 
Yeah. Like I can't, I'm not going to always drink. I'm not going to always meditate. Maybe I just won't drink, but I'm not going to always meditate. I'm going to live in a humanistic world in a, in a, in a householder's life and be a part of this goddamn family, you know? And, you know, you bring up a really excellent point that landed with me because I switched my drug addiction to video game addiction ah, hmm. and then video game addiction to now a fitness addiction. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's like, yes, there are all of these positives that come with being so physical, but there was also very acute awareness of me that I was getting injured because I was overexerting myself. I was starting to form a negative association with it because of, oh, well, you said that you were going to be here and you didn't. And so now it's negative. I was blowing off friends and not making time for anybody because I was just so dead certain that I needed to do this for me. And if I don't, I'm going to regress and I'm going to slip back into old patterns. And so exactly. I'm trying to learn how to find balance in all of that. Yeah. Cause even too much, there's too such thing as too much good. Oh yeah, most definitely. And you know, you, you know, we go from disassociation of self to absorption of self. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, like, I mean, it's, it's good to, to, to maybe even, it's good to swing that pendulum so far that way to realize how important yourself is, yep. but, but also find that balance. And we were talking earlier about, um, the, the idea of self-absorption mm-hmm. and I was saying how it does have a positive connotation in my mind, right. but at one point, if you go over that balance, you filled your cup, your cup is now overflowing pouring onto the table, pouring onto the floor at serving nobody right. anymore. And so at some point you realize that you're full and now you can start pouring into others. Yes. Yes. So with your intuition, like starting to come back into it, you know, because I think, you know, with, with yoga, that was one of those things that triggered my intuition of like, Oh shit, there is a voice inside of me. Oh my goddamn sorry voice. I've been yep. ignoring you for 30 some odd years. Yeah. Um, so with, uh, was, was that like one of those initial steps to listening to your body again and starting to listen to what's going on inside? Absolutely. And I have been calling that, you know, you sit in your mat and you're taking account of your body. What yep. am I feeling today? What am I doing? Okay, I'm actively working on it. It started building this positive relationship between my mind and body. And I noticed the self-talk started to change. Mm. It wasn't such a berating voice anymore that was looking at the negatives. I was calling it the observer because it was at times that I felt like I was splitting into two. I would get this emotional rise. I would start on these old patterns and going down this line of thinking. And at the same time, I was watching myself from a totally stable standpoint going through this thing again. And rather than beating myself up, it was like, you see what you're doing here? All right. So you're going to have your moment. You're going to reflect on it. Just observe. And then once you get through it, we can talk about what we're going to do going forward. Yeah. And part of that self-talk also uh, came about by listening to Gaber Maté, if you're familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, He was talking about his drill-down method and how when these things arise in us that we drill down to what its root cause is. Mm. Why am I feeling this way? Ah, because of this. Well, was that really a sense of self-worth associated with this? Okay, why is it? Well, when I was a kid, I wasn't paid attention to a lot. And so when people ignore me, 
my sense of self-worth goes down. Okay, so it is not them intentionally trying to destroy my self-worth. Mm -hmm. It is me bringing my self-worth in association to what they're actively doing. And all any of us can ever do is be responsible for our own actions. Right. We, we don't know how that's going to affect somebody else. And so finding that separation between what I am bringing in and with me versus what somebody's intent is and what they're trying to do, it's really powerful in not letting other people or making you feel that other people are con in control of your emotions. Right. The whole triggering thing. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Avoid my triggers. Well, and uh, I was actually re-watching a lot of Daniel Sloss's um, comedy stuff, okay. and I loved when he brings up the fact of being offended for other people. It's uh -huh. not even the fact that I what you said identifies with my life is that I'm trying to have this sort of... Um, I don't even know, like savior sense of like, I need to protect this group and this group and this group. Right. And he was like, who are you really offended for? Because that joke was not aimed to hurt anybody. In fact, that bullet was going for a tree and you jumped out in front of it. <laughs> right. He's yeah. like, I, he made this joke about, um, the, the VA and, uh, disabled veterans and said that if disabled veterans, we are creating the best Special Olympics, <laughs> disabled Olympics that we could possibly do uh, from the whole, yeah, injured veterans. Right. And one person really got up in arms about it and messaged him and did all this shit. And he's like, you know who that joke landed with the best? The disabled veterans. Because they didn't see it as a, you know, just kind of this bash on them. They were like, well, we, we do have a great mindset. We we work with what we are given mm -hmm. and yeah, you know, in I actually, somebody in my family, he lost a leg in service and yeah. he's a special Olympian. He's skiing all the time, doing cross country stuff. Oh, he yeah. is more active than most people that I know in my life. Right. And so it's just like, yeah, who are you offended for? Right. And why are you offended? Right. I think, you know, that, that kind of brings me to, um, you know, and you know, not upset with cancel culture, I know it started for a reason, right? Um, but I think it's gone a little too far. And yeah. I think that, uh, so cancel culture is is kind of diving people into their disassociation, you know, because now we're just afraid to talk. We're afraid to share our opinions. We're afraid to share any kind of open views because of the way it could be perceived. Now, again, there's cultural yeah. taboos, again, like we shouldn't talk about or we shouldn't, like, not shouldn't, but, you know, they I think they, they shine lights on where we could do work. But... You know, if somebody is, if somebody has something slightly controversial to say, and now they're afraid to say it, but what they might say might change the way that we perceive something completely, but we're afraid to be canceled. We're afraid to be shunned. We're afraid to, you know, have that connotation. Where do we have the freedom to express our ideas in, in a, in a, in a, in a way that we can get feedback as to like what that idea, how it lands, what it means to people, because a lot of times we're in our own echo chamber. But in the in the search for that, are we are we diving people into more deeper into their disassociation? So, you'd brought up how we have this illusion that we're getting more and more connected. Yeah. And if you really want to get back to human psychology, is that we're very tribalistic. Right. We our perception is limited to the space around us. And so when we are talking about globalization, we're talking about social media. We are going outside of our senses in that regard, and when we're thinking about putting ourselves out there, 
it's scary as fuck yeah. because people are going to take you in their own context. What I said in, you know, I what was it? It was like what some uh, football player had said right after they won this game. They had just scored the game-winning touchdown. His adrenaline's jacked, and he's going off and all of this shit. And then the next few days, people are watching this video. They might be sitting at work. They might have just woken up. They may have just had a bad day. And now they are receiving this message out of that context mm. of where his head was, why he was saying it, right. and they're applying it to their own situation. Now they're upset right. because they don't identify with that. And so it's amazing how many times messages can just be misinterpreted simply through that. Right. And cancel culture is a huge standpoint on that. Um, you know, you talk about comedians and what they say in their entire skit. They had an hour to build up the joke and, you know, really lay it out and get a feel for it. You kind of fall into their context. And then you snip a 30-second clip of what they said and now you're offended because that's what the editing was meant to do. Remove the context and just find something offensive. Right. And in fact, you look at how much of social media is just about reactions to videos. How many journalism isn't just stating facts anymore. It comes wrapped up with the commentary to try and manipulate, intentionally or unintentionally, how you feel about that certain subject. Right. Very rarely are we actually taking the time to take in on altered information figure out how that lands with us yeah we we wonder why we can't figure out what we want or what we like and why we seek this external validation we've been conditioned for it yeah yeah there's a book written a number of years ago called how history gets it wrong i can't remember the author but great fucking book and it talks a lot about how history is all written from somebody else's point of view Always so the same victim. exact thing you <laughs> just said, right? It's written through the lens of the person that's writing the story about it. Mm -hmm. And you could try to be as unbiased as you want, but your opinion is still in there. Yeah. And when you have that, I mean, all of history is written from somebody's opinion. The fucking Bible is written from somebody's opinion, right? Mm -hmm. All these scriptures and all these things, it's like very rarely was that the verbatim gospel from that actual person, right? It's yeah. the... I saw Jesus do this, or I saw Muhammad do this, or I saw this and I saw that. So it's all this interpretation of it. And when we interpret it, of course, it's going to get muddled by our own, our own brain, our own consciousness. So how much are we, how discerning can we really be from the information that's coming in? You know? Yeah. And that was a good, it was, it was a really good way to approach that and, and to kind of like understand what you're talking about and that, that, that it's a perspective. Yep. It is a perspective. Just like, if I read something from like, let's say Europe's version of World War II, it's going to be a little bit different than our version of World War II because they were actively being bombed the entire yeah. fucking time. Like we were just over here deciding whether or not we should jump in, and all of a sudden Hawaii gets attacked, and we're like, yeah, let's go fucking let's go bomb some shit, right? Uh -huh. Different perspectives, right? It's all it's it's going to be contextual on, on how you read it from whose perspective is coming from. So I think that's a lot of, like you're saying, like I just woke up on a Monday morning a week after this event just happened and now I'm offended from this thing, this little clip that somebody purposefully edited to make me, you know, uh, have an emotional response. Yeah. And so it really does feed into the idea of disconnection from self because how can we truly be ourselves, truly be present with ourselves if we're in constant fear of, the world at large yeah. criticizing. It's not even just my family and friends and the people I come in contact with. It's 
anybody that might have read a Facebook message or a tweet now right. several years removed or a video of something I said, hell, something I say on this podcast could be taken out of context and used against me in X number of years. Like if somebody wants to do that, they could. Right. And that fear, it creates a fear from ourselves. And we put out this projection of who we think will be accepted. Mm -hmm. And that projection works in two different ways. One, the bad things, people start picking apart this projection of ourself and we confirm that, yeah, see, this is why I can't bring my authentic self. Even my mm -hmm. most perfect cleaned up version of myself is still getting picked apart. Yeah. And two, even when good things happen to this projection and all the love and acceptance and all that, you know deep down that isn't you. That is my purest self. If you knew the deepest, darkest things I've done, you would not be saying these things to me. Right. And so it's it really is a double fold. And until we can find self-love and true connection of self and figure out who that person is and what we want that person to be, we're going to remain disconnected. Yeah. We can't even connect with the people around us, let alone the world at large. Yeah. Do you think... Um... And, and we, by no means are we experts to answer this question, just, just your opinion. But, um, you know, with, uh, with the, the, the more open understanding of, of being able to um, find what gender or what way of, like, expressing yourself makes the most sense to you. It's mm -hmm. not all biology now, right? Yeah. And, and it, I love hearing, like, little six-year-old kids, you know, recognizing as transgender or outside of their what they're born with, right? And even if that child in 10 years doesn't still recognize is what gender they're deciding. They have the option to talk about it now. Right. Mm -hmm. They have the opportunity to understand and explore what that means to them. Yeah. You know? And so in, in a way, do you think that we, so there was a big disassociation in my generation and probably prior than that, because we didn't accept, you know, lesbian by, you know, all yeah. the LGBTQ plus all that, you know, a man was this and a woman was exactly. This. Yeah. That, that's the way it was. And if you didn't do that, then you were ostracized or you were fucking mm -hmm. killed sometimes. Right. Yep. And now we're in a place where, where these, these children are being raised with the option to explore that, to associate with who they might've disassociated with. Right. So mm -hmm. instead of growing up feeling like a man, but being born as a woman or vice versa, you can now say, you know what? I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very feminine, yeah. right? And I'm going to make that decision at the age of seven to start wearing dresses. Yeah, I'm a boy, but I'm going to wear dresses and feel good about that. And so in a way, do you think that this, this, this uh, freedom to explore that sexuality, that gender might help kids start to find better ways to associate with themselves instead of having to feel like they're, they can't show up as their authentic self? Like I can't be a, a, a you know seven year old boy with red hair wearing a dress with a fucking Elsa on it to school. The the neutrality behind it, yeah, I think is is really really helpful because I you know even just you saying those few examples, I remember as a kid, I got made fun of by my stepdad for using conditioner because only girls use conditioner because only girls should care about their hair. Right. I remember uh, being made fun of for expressing emotion and crying or being you know emotional because oh. You, well, you're too old for that. You're either being a baby or you're being a girl. Yep. Um, and I remember like sitting with that for a long time, like wondering where my identity lied in that. Yeah. Because these were the things that I was feeling. These were the things I wanted to do. And yet I was being told that it was wrong. Mm. So giving children 
the true freedom to explore and figure out what they identify with without fear of judgment. Just act and play. That's, that's a child's prerogative. Right. Figure it out. And in fact, I think it's why so often we, as we're going through our healing journey, we try to reconnect with our youngest self because that was the self that wasn't too concerned with what anybody else thought. It was only until it was impressed upon us and ground into us that we finally started to change. But that self, the reason we're so self-absorbed and why I said self-absorption needs to start is because that's when we figure out who the fuck we are and who we want to bring into the world and who we want to connect with, who will accept us. It, It really does start with the self. There's a psychologist that I listen to a lot named Nicole LaPera. She wrote a book called um, How to Do the Work. Great fucking book. But she talks a lot in that book about how uh, toddlers are the most emotionally stable people we'll ever meet because they always will let you know exactly how they're feeling. Yep. Hey, guess what? I just got a new toy. I'm fucking happy as shit. Hey, somebody just stole my toy. I'm fucking pissed now. (laughs) Right? There's no hiding those emotions. Uh -uh. Right? It's, It's all right there on the sleeve. Yep. And, you know, there's a beauty to that. You know, I understand like as we get older, we can start to discern our emotions a little bit better. But but we're so in control of our emotions. And that word control is fucked up because our emotions should be felt. They're emotions. They're emotive, right? They maybe not always be acted upon to their fullest valor, right? Mm-hmm. Don't want to go shadow emotion all the time. But if I'm sad and you ask me, hey, Adam, how you feeling? Fine. No, that doesn't do anything. Yep. Hey, Austin, I'm a little sad. Thanks for asking. I don't, you don't have to follow up, but just be honest with yourself because that honesty with yourself creates that trust, which creates the intuition, right? Yep. And that creates that reassociation. But when we constantly walk around having these, these preconditioned phrases that we're throwing out there because we don't think that the person actually wants to know how we feel. And that's that projection I was talking about earlier. Because right. Right. I had learned from past experience that if I get too emotional or whatever that I won't it won't be fun. Or people have told me in the past, like, man, why, why are you bringing down the vibe of a room right Right. now? It's yeah, it becomes a very interesting thing. Uh, when I was first seeing my counselor, he asked me why I was so apprehensive to say what I really felt. And I had expressed the fact that, well, I, I just don't want to be this imposition on people. I don't want to bring them into my world. I just, I felt guilty about putting that out and so i just yeah i just internalized it and so he started getting me on this practice of just being honest with people and it started with yeah that whole customer service cashier kind of thing like how's your day and then rather than me going, oh it's fine it's like mixed bag or it's been pretty rough you don't need to emotionally dump on them they didn't ask all of the gritty details Mm -hmm. but they did ask you how you were feeling And you give them a response and they have two options. They can either brush it off or accept it, or they can ask you questions. And some of the deepest connections I've created in my life have been from those tiny little moments of letting that little bit of authenticity come through and having somebody have the intrigue to be like, I want to know more. And then you create these connections. Yes. I have a friend of mine that works in a restaurant, still works in restaurants, been there for a number of years. And it's funny because on the other podcast that I do, Zen and Not Zen, we have this conversation about, about cordiality, right? Basically, like, how are you? And his thing was like, don't give me the fucking, don't give me the honest answer. It's a generic question. And my response to him was, find another way to ask. Hi, 
welcome to whatever restaurant you're at. My name is Robin. What can I get you? It's not like, hey, how's it going? My name's Robin. What can I get you? And they get pissed because they answer how they're doing. Yeah. No. Yeah. Rephrase your question so that uh-huh. you don't ask them and get an answer that you've asked for but aren't ready to re- receive, right? <laughs> yep. And I think that's a lot with people right now. Like, you know, it, they're just genericized responses. Hey, how's it going? Fine. Right? It's just like a just a normal greeting. So when somebody says, well, it's kind of a shitty day, you know, X, Y, Z just happened, blah, blah, blah. And that person's like, oh, we're actually doing this, huh? You know, and there's like, there's this like this awkwardness. But now that I work in, in, in yoga studios mm-hmm. and in the, in the more healing kind of communities, nine times out of 10, I'm going to get a direct answer when I ask that question. Yep. So I make time. Like yep. I make sure that I'm going to give that person the full time in response because I genuinely, genuinely want that answer. I'm not yeah. just asking it because there's a controlled response. I'm like, hey, Austin, how are you doing? Let's sit down and talk about it. 100%, man. And it's, you know, it's part of the reason that I always gravitated towards you because I felt that. Um, because when we first started meeting, yeah, there were several days where I was fucking not all right. Yeah. And just having somebody ask that, it has a really big impact, especially with how it delivers mm. because it that that's felt. Yeah. And... I started doing that on the floor where I started asking people, you know, hey, welcome in. How are you doing today? And I would just stop there before we even get into like the what do you need and blah, blah, blah. I just wanted to gauge upon that reaction. Some gave me that, you know, classic, like, eh, I'm doing all right and blah, blah, blah. I, I knew that there was something on but I wasn't going to poke it. And then right. you had some people dump their purse. And I, I loved those moments because the amount of times that they would apologize and I was like, no, I asked and I am here for it. I, or my favorite response is, do you want an honest answer? Right. Absolutely. I do. Yes. I would love the honest answer. Yes. That's what I'm looking for. Hell yeah, man. And creating, I was only able to do that once I started accepting myself, loving myself, connecting with myself because I started seeing my own pain in other people. Mm-hmm. If, if you don't reconcile that with yourself, how can you possibly connect with anybody else? How can you possibly feel anything in them if you don't feel it within you first? Yes. That's, I think, one of the biggest messages that people need to understand is how much we need to connect with ourselves and love ourselves before we can love others. And, and we might think that we can love others without fully loving ourselves. But there's a trust aspect that, that, mm-hmm. that falls short, you know, and, and somebody put this to me in a very basic way and, and thinking about like just working out, right? Let's say today, you know, all day long, I'm, I actually do plan on going to yoga today. And uh, at four o'clock, I'm going to go to yoga. But let's say three o'clock rolls around and I'm like, ah, I got some work to do. I got this shit. And I talk myself out of it, mm-hmm. right? I can justify it. Yeah, I got all this work done. But all day long, I've been promising myself we're going to yoga. And then last minute, I lied to myself. Yep. And if I'm lying to myself and I can't trust myself because I just created whatever excuse, I'm never going to fully trust the person across from me. You're not showing up for yourself. Exactly. And if you can't do that for yourself, yeah, it's really hard to do it for somebody else. Yes. So why don't we talk about reconnection? Yes. So those are those ways to reconnect to the self. Uh, we talked about yoga or body movement practices, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, I'm a yogi. I love yoga. So if you ask me what to do, I'm going to tell you yoga type shit, yep. right? Monks tell you to monk type stuff, right? I'm going to tell you the yoga shit, right? But it's like CrossFit. Get out and just take a damn walk. One of the best things you can do for yourself is walk for 20 minutes a day. You don't have to briskly walk. You don't have to run. You don't have to have an animal to walk with. Just walking outside. Take your headphones off. 
walk around outside, observe, and just be part of nature for a little bit. And be honest with what you're passionate about. There's a million ways to move your body and find fitness. There's no one size fits all. You, you have to find what lands with you. Yep. And you want to talk about reconnection of the self. It's about finding what makes you happy. And it sounds simple. And yet at the same time, it is so fucking hard. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things I've found was my happiness. Yeah. But that's, that's how we start with reconnection is you just asked yourself that simple question. What makes me happy? Yeah. And then you start running through the Rolodex of all the things until you find those things that stick. Everything else will fall away and that's okay. It's not time wasted, which is what people are afraid of. It is data learned. It's the 10,000th attempt to success. Yeah. That's the way I heard it. No, yep. I love that. You know, because we, we never know how things are going to land with us until we try it. Right. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a body movement practice, whether it's an idea, you know, and, and you can even look at, and I, I used to have this conversation with, uh, with restaurant, um, staff a lot because, you know, uh, in my career, I went into places that were very established and, uh, you know, I'm the new guy, right. But I have all these different systems and I don't go in and just change shit. We learn about it and then we make adjustments, but there is that we've already tried it, right. <laughs> we've, we've done that before. It didn't work. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's say for me, right? For me, right now, I'm a 42-year-old man. Uh, uh, let's say 42, 32, right? 10 years ago, I weighed 250 pounds, right? Right now, I'm 165, right? And that was before I started my yoga journey. And I would not have wanted to try yoga, would not have attempted it, would not have felt good about it, right? Not even going to fucking be part of my journey. Mm-hmm. Years later, that's all I do. Right. But I had to get to a point to where that information made sense to me. Right. So that whole idea of like, oh, we tried it already. That doesn't work. No, no, no. You're a different person. You have different understandings of your own personal body and your goals. Right. You have a different mentality. You have different support system around you. You can do fucking anything. Right. Don't just, oh, try that before it didn't work. No. You want to be a fucking warlock? Try that shit again, right? Go fucking get some magic books, grow your hair long, get a beard, and do a fucking warlock shit, mm-hmm. right? Try it out, right? We have different understandings of where we're at. And so, like, I just really get, um, not frustrated, but it's it's one of those points of me of, like, okay, let's let's talk deeper about this because you've, you're drawn to it for a reason. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a reason that you started it. And so often does it come down to that whole self-talk of, you you killed uh, you killed the dream before it ever could come to fruition. Right. You started finding all the things that were wrong with it, the pain associated with it, the fact that, yeah, oh, well, I had work today, and you find yourself out of the, the practice, and now you're angry because you've disappointed yourself. And what's the best way to not disappoint yourself? Stop making promises. Mm. And yeah. we live in this life of low-bearing fruit floating through the river. We uh, I think Vince Vaughn said it in Dodgeball. He's like, yeah, you just always keep your expectations bare minimum and you're never disappointed. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you can run through that life. But at the same time, you're going to wonder why even that at some point feels so lacking. Right, right. You know, we... There is... There's this kind of mis... Um, misunderstanding of the importance of how much you have to offer, right? You as the individual, not, well, you definitely Austin, but you know, us as the individual, right? 
and I think it's a lot of it's the, 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 the tippedness and the, the unsureness to step into our full authenticity, to be the full human being that we're meant to be, whatever that means to you. Yeah. That's terrifying to people because that puts everything out there. That's your actualization moment. That's putting together all the weird shit that you love in life. The data analysis, the yoga, the video games, the, you know, the, all the shit that seemingly to everybody else doesn't make any sense at all. But weirdly enough, it comes together and makes this beautiful thing that Austin can give to the world. Right. And that's our contribution to humanity. And it's so terrifying to people to understand that their uniqueness has a very, very beautiful place. Because we're taught that uniqueness is, if, if we lean into it, then it's like, hey, look at me, look at me, I'm special. Yeah. Right? Everybody's unique, right? Yeah. Everybody has a uniqueness to offer, but nobody's special, right? Because we're all unique in our own way, that makes us all special. We're all finding our own niche, and you even look to nature, how many different variations there are of the same species. Right. It's just... The reason that exists is because they found a hole in which they fit, and they planted their roots, and they grew. And so, yeah, you can argue all day about the philosophy of, well, if everybody's unique, nobody is. Mm -hmm. But only you came in, your genetic sequence is not going to be, it hasn't been replicated before, it's not going to be replicated after. Your own unique experience of coming into this life, this time period, each, even within your house, each time you pass through it is slightly different. Mm -hmm. And so we create these, yeah, unique lenses and experiences and we can give that to the world and that's our contribution we got to figure out how we can not demonize people's uniqueness learn to accept it and figure out their niche in our world yeah one of my favorite ways to do what you've just described is working with allure groups so um Right now, it's like, you know, like a men's group or a women's group or a, a group that is, you know, um, spe specified towards the understanding of a certain gender of some sort, right? I use men's groups because that's what I, I'm a part of. And the, what, what I do love about men's groups is that it, it gives us an opportunity to talk about a lot of the stereotypes that are put on to men mm -hmm. or people recognizing as men. And, and it gives us an opportunity to like dismiss a lot of that shit because we see that we're all in a very similar boat because we've disassociated with life because I'm not an aggressive male. I don't have like this, like, you know, this suaveness to myself. Yep. I don't have this, like that ambition. I don't have this like iron fist, you know, all this shit that whatever stereotypical males want to do. And even if I have to step towards that, it makes me feel really just wrong and, and icky. Right. Yeah. And, but being able to talk about that feeling that I have to another group of men that are also going through it in their own way helps me associate and just get back into the understanding that it's not just me. You know, it's not just me that's going through this shit. Like we're doing this together. With all of this uniqueness, all of the variability, all the spectrums, the fact that we even talk about normal know, and right? an average <laughs> blows my fucking mind oh. because it's like that person doesn't exist. Yeah. You're taking bits and pieces from everybody on the spectrum that you idealize and you're bringing it into one person that couldn't possibly spread their tendrils to all of those. The reason we exist in so many different ways is because we're supposed to come together and create that perfect thing together. It isn't, it isn't one person to be idealized. I love that. You know, there's uh, one of the ideas of, uh, of uh, spirit, God, you know, whatever you want to call it, is that we're all, we're all incarnations of 
that divine energy that that God can't be. So he created all of these different avatars to experience life so that life can be experienced and he can understand all the different aspects of it from being the aggressor to being the person that was aggressed to being the friend to being the enemy, all the roles that we all play from whatever archetype or whatever kind of demonic thing you want to think of. Like we're all playing those roles Mm -hmm. to help teach, right? And to help understand, you know, so like there's, there is a purpose for what you're doing, right? There is a purpose for it. And I think that's, that's one of those things to get into is like that you do have a purpose. You have a reason. Right. And that's, it's whether you recognize it or not, that's great. Right. You have, in my opinion, you have many incarnations to figure that shit out. Right. Um, but the more we start to believe in ourself and that can be what it is, the self, right. The capital S self that we are here being the part of this world, be the, be the best self you can be like, be your true self because like there is a uniqueness that you can offer that nobody else can. And you were talking a little bit earlier, it wasn't the exact word that you said, but agency Mm. of yourself. And when you finally have that actualization of what you want to bring and what you want to do, um, yeah, exactly that. It's, it can be very scary, but at the same time, the only person standing in your way is you. Really? Yes. Yes. And the fear that keeps you from really exploring that, that next chapter is this really kind of disjointed comfort that we found in something that doesn't serve us, you know, mm-hmm. something that if somebody else looked at whatever comfortable blanket I wrapped myself in, they'd look at that and be like, dude, that's full of spikes. There's razor blades and glass in that blanket. Why are you there? And I'm like, no, it's cozy. It's good. I'm fucking warm. Not realizing that there's like a, the most comfortable blanket made out of marshmallows next to me, but I'm stuck in my razor blanket because that's just what I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So it is really, it's, it's, it's understanding what patterns we fall on ourselves into and, and being okay with trying something different, being uncomfortable. Um, but you, you really don't know how beauty, the beauty that holds outside of you until you explore it, you know, and that's where humanity comes from. Like we talked about earlier, that's being part of humanity. Yeah. And that's why I love connecting with people the way that I have and seeing the world through their eyes. Um, cause it, the the first kernel of this ideology came from this reading that I did in English, and it was called uh, Seeing by Annie Dillard. And it was talking about the various lenses that we look through the world. Why, when I was a kid, I would see this penny on the ground, and I would just get so excited, and yet as an adult, we walk right past it. We'll step on it. We don't really give a shit. Yeah. Why she did this beautiful representation of your walking to work, you have all these things on your mind and there's a pond off to the side. You don't give two shits about that pond. It's not where your mind is. You have this intent. You're going to be blown right past it. And yet, if that same situation were to recur and you see a full-grown man crouched over this pond, really intently looking at it and studying it, your immediate thought is, what is he seeing there that I am not seeing? Mm. And so you go up and you talk to him and you ask him, And it turns out he's an ecologist. So he starts talking to you about the way that this pond formed, the reason why it's special, all the diversity that's in this thing and all the depth and all the creativity that comes through that. Hmm. And your idea changes every time you see a pond. You're now equipped with that. You think about that one ecologist that you met. And I've felt that way through yoga and understanding really the depth 
that was there. I've same with my marine biologist friend and respecting the fish and the ocean and all of that. Um, oddly enough, even hunters. There's there's a lot of people, especially you know, if we want to talk about veganism, about the abhorrent nature of hunting, mm-hmm. and yet they are more connected with nature and animals than most other people that I know, simply because they put themselves in that world. They appreciate the world. They see themselves as part of it. They learn their the animal that they're hunting, and through that learning comes an appreciation. When they kill that animal, they use every single bit of it. You know, there are some that do trophy hunting, but I'm talking about the people that take a more indigenous approach. Right. And they are using the... Yes, they'll use the head, but they'll use the pelts and they'll use the meat and they haul that bitch back home. Mm-hmm. They're using everything of that thing. And really where the cruelty comes from with meat comes from the industrialization of it and the disconnection of what we're actually doing. Right. You're not going out into the world and taking it for yourself and utilizing it. It's And how many people are horrified by the process of just what would come to your table like yeah. that piece of chicken that just came to your table if you watched it like from birth to to death yeah in the process of getting it to your table probably most people wouldn't eat meat again it, like we're so desensitized or we're or disassociated from that kind of process but we love the outcome yeah and i grew up on farms mm. and so i got to see how they were treated from a familial standpoint yeah. and even though i knew the name of this chicken or the name of this cow that we were eating at the same time i knew the life that it lived i knew the effort and the love that was put into this animal and what it gave back to us and there was just this deep-seated appreciation for it Mm -hmm. it wasn't such this tragedy that so many people like to call it up it it was a purpose that it served yeah well and i you know with with that too you know there when we can connect with the food that we're, we're, we're eating, whether it's plants or animals or whatever in between the process of like, there is, there's a beauty of that process. And I think there's, there's like almost a recognition more deeper of the nutrients that that can give you because you're such an intimate part of the process now, mm-hmm. you know, whereas it's just like, Oh, I'm going to go to the store and get some bread just buy a loaf of bread. Well, actually, you know, make that bread with your hands, with the love that you have, right? When you, when you decide to slaughter that pig, Hey, Percy, come on over here. So sorry, but thanks for feeding our family. Mm-hmm. You know, thanks for giving your life so we can sustain ours. No, it's probably not your choice, but you thank know. you for giving you uh, us your piglets that we're gonna raise and uh, nurture and all mm-hmm. of that. It's we want to talk about why we feel so disconnected from society. It's because society has disconnected us from all of those things. It's it acts as this servant mm-hmm. and providing all of these things through convenience and what we're actually we're being taken away from we we don't have that sense of agency of getting our own food anymore we don't have that sense of agency of really knowing what went into our clothes what went into our phone what went into this and that and so it's we wonder why we're a throwaway culture we can't appreciate it because we didn't build it ourselves right right you know that i think there that speaks to me when people have to deal with any car issues like people drive cars like nobody's business. Then fucking turn a key, put in drive, we're mm-hmm. gone. Put a signal on every once in a while, we're good to go. As soon as something goes wrong with that car, man, everything goes wrong because we have no idea what happens in the car. And even people that are mechanically inclined 
can't even really work on cars because it's all computer now, right? Yeah. And as soon as you crack open that hood, it, valid it, it invalidates the warranty, right? And so now we're forced to continuously take shit to people to, to diagnose for us and to not like look at it ourselves. Yep. I actually had a, um, a maintenance guy that I worked with a while back and he used to get so pissed at us because, you know, restaurants, we don't take care of shit. We do the best we can, but you know, we're fucking restaurant guys, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so, like, coolers would go down all the time and, like, all this stuff that could be fixed or could be fine with preventative maintenance if we just stayed up on our shit, but we didn't. And yeah. we'd have to constantly throw shit away. And he would get so pissed because it's like, dude, this is just going to go in a landfill now. If once a month you would have just emptied this one tray, it would have lasted for 20 years. Now it's lasted for two, you know? And it's not that you had an inability or an unwillingness to learn. It's that the system itself is designed to take away that worry. And exactly. if you don't have to worry about it, if it's outside your fields, it's just as simple as that. It falls off of our radar. Yeah. Yeah, it is, man. <laughs> so in your path through, uh, through this life that you've lived and the kind of the roller coaster of emotions that we experience, um, it seems to me that you're making your way back to reconnection yeah. with self, with, with others, with life. Um, is is i mean i don't think we're ever it's like you said healed earlier mm -hmm. i don't think we'll ever be healed right there's yeah. always work that we can kind and there's of new traumas and experiences coming in all the time exactly. so it's it's an ever-going process yeah. but there's some beauty in that yeah and even with where we're at now like let's say with cell phone technology and it's only going to continue to continue you know and can continue to grow in its own way the abilities and the opportunities to continuously disassociate are going to be there. Yeah. Right. So it's not like, okay, I've associated myself, pin it. We're good. We're going to stay there the rest of my life. Fuck no. Right. So, but being aware of the practices that you have now, right. Mm -hmm. to, to, to get yourself back into those spaces. Yep. Do you feel like you're a little more set up to kind of weather that kind of pendulum swing and then to just be present with where you're at? 100% because through yoga, through meditation, through taking time to reflect on the thoughts that are coming through my head, it's it's like bringing your car to a mechanic in a sense. You can keep riding that bitch until it breaks down on the middle of the road, or you can set up periodic checks to make sure that what you're doing is what you should be doing mm -hmm. and be informed with the information on how to prevent that from happening. Yeah. So it is a constant check-in point. Yeah. And constantly leaning in, it's it's all right to fluctuate. We're meant to fluctuate, right. but you need to have some anchoring forces in your life to for reevaluation. Yeah, and and I'll piggyback on that. Be honest with yourself with the answers. Don't give yourself the answer you want to give yourself because yep. you're just done with your meditation for the day. Like there's two questions I ask myself, and I'm done with my meditation now. Do you feel grounded? Do you feel connected to your heart? Yep. And as soon as I finish my meditation, I'll ask those questions. And I have to be honest with myself because I can shortchange myself and be like, yeah, I feel fine. But 90% of the time, like if there's no, it's because I don't feel connected to my heart. I feel grounded most of the time, but my heart is not connected. So I, but I've got to be honest with myself and I will sit there now and take another five minutes, another three breaths, whatever it is, and breathe into my heart space and be, be confident with the, the yes that I give myself. Because again, we can just we can we can we can placate to ourselves as much as we can placate to the to, to humanity. Right? Yep. So get an honest answer with yourself because we need to create that trust. Absolutely. Yes. Well, dude, I'm so honored to have this conversation with you, <laughs> and I'm so thankful for your vulnerability and your honesty. Um, thank you. Like this is this is such good information and good good topics to talk about. 
we all go through this stuff. We all have our experiences with this association, whether it's from self or from humanity, but we are social beings. We need people. We don't need to always be surrounded by people, but you need to have some kind of connection. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a great, great pleasure. Oh yeah, brother. Look forward to having you back. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for spending time with Austin and I. Uh, please check out the show notes for ways to get in touch with Austin or myself and ways you can support the show. Obeisance and love. We'll see you all next time.